hearts to you and to one another. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good evening, ladies. My name is Heather Sadler, and I serve as one of your writers, editors, and teachers for Women's Bible Study. And the last time that I spoke with you, it was to a video because of the COVID pandemic, and it is much more enjoyable to talk to you face-to-face tonight. So I want to start by asking you to look to your right and look to your left. And what do you see that's different around you tonight? You see empty chairs, you see masks, chairs that are socially distanced. Some of you are joining us virtually this evening. We've condensed our AM and our PM study to accommodate the global pandemic that we're in. And it's been in this season of COVID that our comforts have been taken away. Financial hardship, even for some loss and grief. And yet what we're about to see tonight is immensely more intense than the pandemic that we are experiencing right now. The plagues of Egypt bring about complete destruction to an entire nation, leaving behind catastrophic loss and death. Now there is so much that we could cover tonight, and I'm going to attempt to answer your questions. But with that being said, I can't possibly answer all the questions that you have. And I wish that over the next three chapters that we're about to dive into, that I could sit one-on-one with you and just for hours pour over the theology, the doctrine, the genius literary structure that these next three chapters have. So if you want to do that, then contact me afterwards. Uh, But tonight, I'm going to attempt to stick to the main points of our teaching lesson. And so as you were doing your homework, you might have asked, why? Why these acts of judgment? Why God's wrath? And it's important to understand before we get started that this is a response to horrific sin. It's a response to a genocide of innocent babies. It's a response to the enslavement of people, to increased oppression over and over In Exodus 3 and 4, God tells Moses of his promise to deliver the Israelites from their slavery and oppression, and that he will pour out judgment against Egypt, including death. And we're going to see tonight that no judgment comes without warning. Did you notice last week that God gave the Israelites three chances to believe in him? He gave Moses signs to help them believe. He had Moses throw down his staff, which becomes a serpent, and the text actually tells us that it terrified him and that he ran away from it initially. He puts his hand inside his cloak and pulls it out, and it's a diseased hand. And then he takes some water and he throws it down directly in front of him, and that water becomes blood. So God gives the Israelites numerous opportunities to believe. And tonight we're going to see that God gives Egypt numerous opportunities to repent. Numerous opportunities to believe in him and numerous opportunities to repent. So Moses goes into Pharaoh in Exodus 5 and he asks him, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds with a defining question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Pharaoh hardens his heart and then increases the affliction. So In this style of literature, which is a narration account, 
The narrator does not seek to explain everything that happens. Certain events are assumed meaning by the original audience due to their culture and their context. This is where the additional work comes in for us to study. One of my favorite theologians says, we must understand what it meant to them then before we can understand what it means to us now. So I want you to keep that in mind as we study tonight. Them, then, us now. One of the assumed meanings and understandings of the plagues is the battle between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. Egypt had numerous gods that they worshipped, and there were many deities, some deities being more important than the other. Pharaoh was considered a god himself, in fact, the most important human in existence. He was considered this because he was believed to be the son of Ra, who was the sun god. And we'll get to more on that later. And so some of you might have a background um, in Christianity where you've heard this story before. Some of you might be new to the faith, and your only knowledge of the plagues might be what you saw from the Ten Commandments. And that's okay. We're all going to learn together tonight. But maybe some of you are thinking, what do the plagues really mean? Where it might be confusing for you. Well, why? Why locust? Why flies? And I want the Lord is going to answer that question tonight. God will answer Pharaoh's defining question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And the plagues are the response to that question. So the Lord's going to answer his question by establishing his sovereignty and his authority, not just over man, but over all of the earth. And this includes exposing the Egyptian gods for who they really were, weak and ineffective. Now, the text does not identify the Egyptian gods by name or even make reference to them, but for the original audience, they would have known exactly what was being communicated about those gods. And so before we jump in, I want to talk about the cycle and the structure of the plagues that we're going to study. So with the plagues, there are three cycles, and I'm sure that there are more academic um, language to describe this, and I'll just give you my layman's terms for the three cycles of the plagues. So cycle number one is going to cover plagues one through three, and that's going to address the supernatural power of God over man and all of the earth. Cycle number two are plagues four through six, and this is where we will see a distinction made between Israel and Egypt. God separating out his people, something that we also see in the final judgment of eternity. And then cycle number three, plagues seven through ten, are utter destruction and death. And now in each cycle, there's a structure to how they are carried out. Moses will confront Pharaoh early in the morning. Moses will go into Pharaoh, and then the plague happens without any kind of announcement. And that cycle, the structure repeats itself through each cycle. Each cycle also has a climatic ending, The ending of cycle number one ends with the magicians unable to replicate the plagues. Cycle number two ends with the magicians unable to physically stand before Moses. And at the end of cycle three, we see Moses completely driven out from the presence of Pharaoh. So let's jump in. Last week, we saw a battle happening between the throne of man and the throne of God. So Moses and Aaron obey the Lord. They go to Pharaoh and they ask to let our people go. 
Pharaoh demands a sign, which was common in that time. So Moses throws down his staff, and it becomes a serpent. The magicians counter by throwing down their staff, and do you remember what happens? Moses' staff swallows up the staffs of the magicians. And if you look closely at the text, the one staff swallows up many. So what, what song did we just sing in worship? The name of the Lord will not be overcome. And I love the metaphor that we see in the staff of Moses and Aaron swallowing up the many staffs of the Egyptians. So right at the beginning, the Lord Yahweh is defining himself as supreme and authoritative, and he will swallow up his enemies. Verse 713, however, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So we find Pharaoh's response from chapter 5, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And this begins the Lord's response to who he is that Pharaoh should obey. Plague number one. This is what the Lord says. Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. Watch, I am about to strike the water in the Nile with a staff in my hand, and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, and the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. So the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, canals, ponds, and over all their water reservoirs, and they will become blood. There will be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in wooden and stone containers. So the Nile was considered the life source to the Egyptians. And for this reason, Happy was the Nile god. She was the Egyptian god of the Nile. And ancient records show the Egyptians singing hymns to Happy, hymns of worship. And the Nile had an annual flood. And during this annual flood, the Nile would deposit this rich, fertile soil that would make the crops in Egypt very prosperous. And so the Egyptians, in their worship to Happy, would pray and sacrifice and worship to this god in an attempt that the flood not be too high, where it would bring damage and wash away the riverbanks, or that the flood not be too low and it would affect their prosperity. So Happy was worshipped and sacrificed to. And what is the meaning when the text says that blood was coming even from the wooden and stone containers? Well, the blood coming from the wooden and stone containers shows that this is an unexplainable supernatural event that cannot be explained by nature. In fact, after the resurrection, Jesus Christ himself eats fish. And do you know why he did this? To prove that his body could digest food that his bodily resurrection was a supernatural event, unexplainable. In verse 16, God identifies himself as the Lord God of the Hebrews. Now, Pharaoh believed he was a God. So to hear this phrase and hear this description, it would have been laughable to him. It would have been laughable that a God would identify himself with a people group who was enslaved, who had no wealth, no possession, it would have made no sense to Pharaoh. But God's deliverance of his people is not based on what they can do for him. It's based on his covenant promise with them. So the Lord's going to reveal that he is God over not just his people, but all the earth. 
And for the magicians, this is now the second time that the magicians have been able to replicate a plague. Egypt had many gods, and occult practices were very common. And the, magician, the magicians worked on behalf of the Egyptian gods. And this is where the narration does not tell us how this happened. It doesn't seek to explain to us how this happened. And while we wonder that, it's important to note the original audience wasn't asking that question because this was such a common occurrence. In fact, it was so common that Pharaoh himself is completely unimpressed, turns around physically, and walks away. He's completely unimpressed by the first plague. But you see, the magicians can replicate the plague, but they cannot reverse the plague. Seven days go by, and all of the Egyptians are desperate. They are digging trenches, searching for life. And do you see the metaphor? They are desperately searching for the life source outside of the true life source. This is leaving them thirsty and weary and exhausted. They are digging deep in the wrong place. And what they have worshipped as their life source, the text says, has brought forth a foul smell of death. 722, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them. Who was the Lord that I should obey them? Plague number two. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, I will plague all of your territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs. They will come up and go into your palace, into your bedroom, and on your bed, into the houses of your officials and your people, and into your ovens and kneading bowls. The frogs will come up on you, your people, and all of your officials. So God gives warning and exact detail of what will happen if Pharaoh does not let his people go. Now, it was common for frogs to come up out of the Nile. Why? Because of the annual flood. After the annual flood, millions of frogs would be born and come up out of the Nile. But you see, this plague is different. And for this reason, the Egyptians worshipped Heket. Now, Heket was the goddess of fertility, water, and renewal. Heket had the head of a frog, and Heket does not bring renewal, but chaos. The plague has also progressed. So now the effects of the plague are extending beyond the Nile and physically into the Egyptians' homes. This is the third time that the magicians are able to replicate the plague, and we're not given any commentary, um, just that they were able to duplicate the sign but are unable to reverse it, highlighting the Lord's supremacy. So Pharaoh asked Moses to appeal to God for relief, revealing that he and his magicians are beginning to recognize who the Lord is, supreme and authoritative. And the request alone is an admission of defeat, that the magicians are unable and therefore non-supreme. So Moses cries out to the Lord, and we see him interceding. Not only has he been an intercessor for Israel, now we see Moses interceding on behalf of the wicked. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And the plagues typically end with, as the Lord had said, to present you with an important truth. God is sovereignly in charge of the plagues, and it is confirming his word. God is faithful to do what he says he will do, even with judgment. Now, Pharaoh hardens his heart after 
relief. So Pharaoh suffers. He desires to escape the consequences of his sin, yet Pharaoh returns to his old ways as soon as those consequences are lifted. And how many of us have done the exact same thing? Who here has ever bargained with God? Who here has ever pled through tears for God to just spare you the consequences of your own choices? And yet, when those consequences are lifted, who here has gone right back to their own misery and pride and rebellion? You see, the Exodus story is our story. So relief comes, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and the question still lingers in the air, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Plague number three. The third plague of gnats is very short in description, and no announcement to Pharaoh is given. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron to stretch out your hand and strike the dust of the land, and it will become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. The Egyptian god Geb reigned over the dust of the earth, god of dry land. All of the dust of the land became gnats on people and on livestock. Another false god dismantled. The god of the earth holds no power over the dust of the land. And in fact, the god of the dust of the land brings extreme discomfort. So the magicians seek to replicate the gnats, and for the first time, they cannot. In this short description, we are not told that Moses and Aaron enacted this plague in front of the magicians, but it is implied since they sought to replicate the plague. But they're unable, and they have to admit, this must be the finger of God. So the third plague in cycle one, God reigning supreme over all of the earth with a climatic ending, that the magicians are unable to replicate the gnats, and they start warning Pharaoh, God is at work. So Pharaoh's rebellion is increasing. He will not listen to Moses or Aaron or the Lord, and now he will not listen to his trusted advisors. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Plague number four. This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you will not let my people go, then I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies so that they will land where they live. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way, you will know that I am the Lord in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This will take place tomorrow. So the Egyptian god of creation, Kepri, had the head of a fly. Plagues four through six begin cycle two, which is making a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God refers to Israel as my people, and he refers to Egypt as your people. And for those of you that did the Genesis study, did you catch where? In the land of Goshen, where Joseph brought forth his family to preserve them from the famine, and that land was given to them by the old Pharaoh who knew Joseph. The Lord also continues to warn Pharaoh, telling him exactly what will happen if he doesn't obey. And this time, he increases the time to repent. 
He provides an extra day for repentance. And as the effects of the plague start increasing, the time to repentance will also increase. It's important to note that. And the Lord did this. Thick swarms of flies went into Pharaoh's palace and his Egyptians' houses. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarms of flies. So Pharaoh, looking out amongst his nation and seeing the utter ruin that the flies have brought, forced him to have some kind of response. Pharaoh has now seen too much to deny God's authority, and he tries to negotiate with the Lord. He gives permission to go, but within the land. Moses responds that they need to worship the Lord as he tells them. So Moses is communicating, communicating that we will respond to the Lord in obedience and in faith. Pharaoh, who has yet again been relieved of the full effect of sin, ignores his opportunity to repent. He increases his rebellion, his arrogance, his pride, and his stubbornness. And suddenly, Pharaoh doesn't become that hard to relate to. How often do we do the same thing? We're given the opportunity to repent, and yet what we respond with is our own desires, our own pride, and increased rebellion. The Exodus story is our story. The Lord did as Moses had said. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people, and not one was left. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, And this time, he would not let the people go. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Plague number five. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go and keep holding them, then the Lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock in the field, the horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction amongst the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing in the livestock of Israelites will die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. The Lord did this the next day. All of the Egyptian livestock died, but none of the Israelite livestock died. So Hathor was the Egyptian goddess of love and protection. Usually, this goddess was depicted with the head of a cow. Hathor cannot provide love and protection, and the plague brings the opposite, which is death. God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, this time adding a more severe consequence of death. So the distinction is obvious. Egypt is condemned and Israel is saved. Now, through the account of the plagues, it could be easy to see God as judge. But do you see him as mercy? Do you see the increased time that he is giving to repent? God gives in explicit detail exactly what will happen, leaving nothing to the imagination. You see, no judgment comes without warning. Pharaoh sent messengers who saw that not a single one of the Israelite livestock were dead. So Pharaoh sent spies to see if what the Lord said was true, even when the Lord told him. And yet, what he finds does not change his response. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the people go. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Plague number six. 
Now, plague number six becomes the first plague to impact the Egyptians directly. All other plagues have an indirect impact, and now we start to see a physical suffering on the Egyptians themselves. And do you see the lack of care that Pharaoh has for his own people? He is being warned exactly what will happen, and now it's affecting his people that he is ruling and reigning over, and he could care less. So it is now a battle of prides, and his people will suffer for it. Isis was the Egyptian goddess, I'm sorry, Egyptian goddess of medicine and peace. But Isis cannot heal the Egyptians from the painful sores and boils. Verse 10, so they took this furnace soot and stood before Moses. Moses threw it toward heaven, and it became festering boils on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. So cycle number two ends with this climatic ending of the magicians being unable to stand. And remember, these magicians represented the gods of Egypt. They worked on behalf of the gods of Egypt. So they've been unable so far to overpower the plagues. They've been unable to reverse them. Then they were unable to replicate. And now they are unable to physically stand in Moses' presence. They are powerless, they have no authority, and they have been brought to their knees. It is in this plague moving forward, 6 through 10, that we're going to see a shift from the text describing Pharaoh as hardening his heart to the Lord being the one hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And so on the hardening of heart, all of Scripture is true, but not all of Scripture is clear. And that's okay. We can be okay with that. And what does the heart truly define? When it says that his heart was hardened, what does that really mean? It's not just his emotions. It's his will. It is his heart posture before the Lord. And what influences our heart? Not just emotions, but our will, ourselves. So keep that in mind as we dive through the hardening of the heart. So plagues one through five are going to identify Pharaoh as being accountable for the hardening of his own heart. Plagues six through 10 show that the Lord is the one hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Now, this is difficult to understand, and it's okay for us to admit that, but it does present us with two certainties. Certainty number one is that man is fully accountable for his own sin. And certainty number two is that God is absolutely sovereign, even over the heart of man. God does have the power to harden so free will and the absolute sovereignty of man is a difficult doctrine to understand, and we're not going to attempt to dive into that today. But we are going to take the text for what it says. Pharaoh is held accountable for his sin, and the Lord chooses to further harden his heart. And when we come to something like this in Scripture that's difficult to understand, what it prompts us to do is to go further into Scripture. And that's a good thing. That's why we're here tonight. So I encourage you to look into this more. Romans 1 warns us that God will deliver us over to the desires of our heart for unrepentant sin. So God creates man. Man rejects God. Man creates their own gods. Man worships their own gods. 
God gives numerous opportunities to believe and numerous opportunities to repent. Man rebels even further, and God removes his protection from man, giving them over to their own rebellion. So God chooses not to soften an already hard heart. Verse 12, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them as the Lord told Moses. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Plague number seven. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go that they may worship me. For this time I am about to send all my plagues against you, your officials, and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me in all of the earth. By now, I could have stretched out my hand against you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and make my name known on the whole earth. The Egyptian goddess of the sky, Nut, is unable to stop the catastrophic hail. And God just told Pharaoh that he will sovereignly rule and reign to accomplish his own purposes. Proverbs 21.1 says, A king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand, and he turns it at which way he wills. I encourage you to look up Romans 9, where Paul further addresses the sovereignty of God. Paul understands what the reader could be thinking, which is how is God just yet exercises sovereign choice? And he addresses this in Romans 9, if you want to read further. So with that understanding, let's continue reading through the seventh plague. The Lord says, You are still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. Tomorrow at this time, I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelter. Every person and animal that is in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail falls on them. Those amongst Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and their livestock come into the shelters. But those who didn't take heart, the Lord's warning, left their servants and livestock in the field. So something interesting is happening here. In verses 14 through 17, this is the first and the only time that the Lord explicitly explains to Pharaoh his purposes. And in verses 18 and 19, it's the first time that the Lord gives Pharaoh a way to avoid the plague. So the Lord's provision to provide shelter is a test amongst the Egyptians who fears the Lord. And there is rescue and life for those who fear the Lord. The Lord is faithful to do what he says he will do. So the hail beat down on every plant of the field and shattered every tree on the field. The only place it didn't hail was the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. So this hail is devastating. Any person or animal left out died. You might be wondering If the Egyptian livestock were killed in the fifth plague, how were their animals left to die here in the seventh plague? And I'm so glad you asked that. Thank you for asking. (laughs) And the answer is that it's not completely clear. 
But there are a few assumptions that we could make, and we won't spend too much time on this, but noticeably absent in the fifth plague when a list of animals are given were goats. So it's possible that goats were spared from the fifth plague to be reserved for the judgment in the seventh. It's also possible that amongst the foreigners that lived throughout the land of Egypt had their own livestock, and then the Egyptians seized them for their own when all of their livestock died. So I can assure you that although it might seem like there's a contradiction in the Bible, we do not need to fear that the Bible contradicts itself. Plagues 7 through 9 intensify in severity and prefigure the final judgment of death. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again, and he hardened his heart, he and his officials. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, as the Lord had said through Moses. Who was the Lord that I should obey him? Plague number eight. If you refuse to let my people go, then tomorrow I will send locusts into your territory. They will cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will eat the remainder that the hail left behind. They will eat every tree growing in the field. They will fill your houses, your officials' houses, and the houses of all the Egyptians, something your fathers and grandfathers never saw in the time that they occupied the land until today. So Seth, the Egyptian god of storms and disorder, was considered a god of chaos and evil. Yet Yahweh is clearly and sovereignly orchestrating the supernatural acts of judgment, exposing the lack of power and authority the Egyptian gods were believed to have. The Lord has Moses tell Pharaoh many times, so that you will know I am the Lord, answering his question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? The Lord also reminds Moses that there is a purpose for the nation of Israel, for the glory of the Lord to be made known in all generations. So the plagues are increasing in their intensity and in their suffering amongst the Egyptians. The locusts destroy everything that the hail left behind. They covered the whole land so that the land was black, and they consumed all the plants on the ground, the fruit on the trees that the hail had left. Nothing green was left on the trees that the plants in the field throughout the land of Egypt. So what is being foreshadowed here? Darkness. Locusts covering the earth looks like complete blackness, foreshadowing plague number nine. I want to take a couple of steps back to Pharaoh's officials. At this point, they are fed up and angry with Pharaoh. While Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge what the plagues mean, the officials are now well aware. And they strongly rebuke him because Egypt is utterly ruined. How much longer will Pharaoh battle for his throne? Pharaoh is not acting on behalf of his people, but in a power struggle for his own pride. And his people are tired of suffering for his stubbornness. So after this strong rebuke from his officials, Pharaoh listens to them for the first and only time. He summons Moses and Aaron back before the next plague is enacted. And he tells them, go, but only the men. And then Moses and Aaron were driven out from his presence. So can you feel how high the tensions are becoming? 
Verse 16, Pharaoh urgently sent for Aaron and Moses, saying, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Please forgive me my sin once more and make an appeal to the Lord so that he will take this death away from me. Now, something interesting throughout these three chapters is how many word plays there are. And it's interesting that he says, take this death away from me, when how many times has death been warned to Pharaoh? And yet this is also a foreshadow of the death to come. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the Israelites go. Who was the Lord that I should obey him? Plague number nine. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, and there will be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another, and for three days they did not even move from where they were. Yet the Israelites had light where they lived. So darkness is the complete dismantle of Ra, the sun god. Ra was chief among all the cosmic gods considered father of creation. Pharaoh was believed to be the son of Ra. So do you see what's happening? Ra, the father. Pharaoh, the son. And the, magi- the magicians acting on behalf of the gods. Ra and Pharaoh are completely blotted out from the darkness, unable to rule and reign, crippling the most powerful gods of Egypt. The ninth plague does come unannounced. I believe that there's three plagues that come unannounced following that structure in the cycle we talked about earlier. So darkness comes unannounced, and it was a darkness intended to be so thick it could be felt. The darkness felt for three days prefigures the most severe and final judgment to come, which is death. And on a quick note about a plague that's coming without an announcement, when we remember the structure, remember that there is no judgment without warning. Pharaoh was warned in his very first confrontation with Moses that judgment was coming, even death, and if he did not let the people go. So the plague of darkness was not announced, but that does not mean that there was not a warning. There have been numerous warnings and increased opportunities of time to repent. So the plague of darkness itself is a warning to the final plague to come. So Pharaoh summons Moses and says, your people your men and your families can go worship the Lord, but leave your livestock. Now, I have to, assume, I, I don't know, and I say that humbly, I'm a student along with you of the, of the word, but I have to assume that it's possible Pharaoh wanted them to leave their livestock behind because Egypt has been utterly ruined, and he needs something from these people. Where am I? Okay, so Moses said that they must go and leave nothing behind in faith and obedience to the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was unwilling to let them go. Who was the Lord that I should obey him? So Pharaoh gets angry, and he tells Moses, leave me. Make sure you never see my face again, for on the day that you see my face, you will die. And Moses replies, I will never see your face again. So the wordplay on never see your face again 
or never see my face again, connects the previous plague with the coming plague. It connects the locust who cover the earth in complete blackness. It, compl- it connects the darkness that was felt where faces were blotted out from each other and death. So Moses' final words to Pharaoh this week leave an imminent ominence in the air of the death that is to come. The repetitive and the continual hardening of heart, arrogance, and pride and rebellion has led to the coming final plague, the judgment of death. So throughout the plagues, the Egyptian gods have been exposed for what they really are, ineffective, non-supreme, weak, empty, and not worthy of worship. And Egypt has suffered extreme devastation. Now, in biblical numerology, it's interesting that the number 10 represents wholeness. And so we have the Ten Commandments from God, which represent the wholeness of God's moral law given to man. And in the plagues, we have the Ten Plagues, which represent the wholeness of God's judgment upon unrepentant sin. Ten times, Pharaoh is given the option to repent and turn to the one true God. God answers Pharaoh's question and reveals to him who the Lord is that he should obey. But Pharaoh's heart posture before the Lord is complete rebellion. So do you remember the phrase, them, then, us, now? Well, there is an audience, there's characters here that these events specifically happen to. There's also an original audience that this was intended for. And the message communicated to the original audience is, do not harden your heart. And we're, we find this in Psalm 95. It is a worship and a warning from the Exodus narrative. It warns Israel through worship, do not harden your heart. And we are being called to do the same. The Exodus story is our story. So where do you stand today? What is the Lord calling you to repent from? To soften your heart to him and obey the Lord with joyful obedience. To examine your heart and search yourself to see, do I have any arrogance or pride before the Lord? Are you tired of asking for deliverance yet running back to your own misery? Who is the Lord that I should obey him is the question that we all ask today. So as we close, I want to leave you with two questions. Who do you say he is? Who do you say that the Lord is? Are you living in obedience? In Matthew, Jesus says that you will know a man by his fruits. What does the fruit of your life show? And I would venture to say, not what you think the fruit of your life shows. What does the Lord think the fruit of your life shows? What would people around you say that the fruit of your life reveals? Are you living faith in faithful obedience? Or do you have rebellion? Open rebellion against the will of God that he really has no authority to tell you how you should live your life. You see, some of us keep God at a distance where he's just a small part of our life that we live completely for ourselves. We chase our own desires, we have fun, and God has no real authority to set rules and boundaries for our life for our own protection. And some of us don't live in open rebellion, but the rebellion is deep within our hearts. Pride, 
and arrogance, a mind that says, I am my own God and no one can tell me what to do. And the Lord is calling us to examine that in ourselves and repent, to soften our hearts before him and give him full authority over our lives. Does the evidence in your life reveal a kingdom of self or obedience to the kingdom of God? You see, there is only one throne. So who do you say he is? Does he have the authority to be the only God? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the gift of scripture, for it to confront us for who we really are, which is sinful and in need, that our hearts are rebellious towards you, yet you give us opportunity after opportunity to repent. I thank you that, like the Israelites, Lord, that you miraculously save us of no work on our own. I ask, Lord, that the truths that we learn tonight, that you will keep them on our mind, that you will help us believe that you are a good God who can be trusted and you deserve our reverence, you deserve our obedience. Help us to love you more than we do. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right. How do you turn it off? All right, much better. Hey guys. Okay, it's everybody's favorite night. It's the night where we get to take the questions that you have asked and try to answer them. And hopefully a lot of them that got asked, week five was a really popular week for questions. So a lot of questions came in on the plagues and on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which will continue to be something that we see again and again in the text. So we'll get more of that. And if we have time, we might even talk about it a little more this evening. Um, but we're going to jump into it. We're going to answer the questions that were submitted, and then we'll see if we have time, what kind of fun we can have after that. <laughs> okay, so one of the questions that we got that was really popular, we got it from more than one of you, had to do with the line of who? The Hebrew wives. How many of you had questions about whether or not the, the Hebrews, uh, midwives, the Hebrew midwives were lying? Got a couple of those. Okay, so let's talk about the Hebrew midwives. Were they lying? It's a great question, right? Um, the text doesn't exactly tell us. What I love so much about the question, though, is that's what we should care about. What does God actually think? So there were two different questions that came in. One had to do with um, whether they lied, and the other had to do with does God permit justifiable lying? So we're really looking for God's opinion. The text itself doesn't tell us if the midwives lied or not, so we would just really be guessing. But we do see very clearly that God approved of the actions of the midwives because it says that he was pleased and that also we see that he even goes so far as to reward them for their actions. Um, 
One of the things that I love about the Old Testament when we study it is that we get to see so many instances where God interacts or responds to the actions of people, and it informs us a lot on the priorities of God. As much as I love the historical narrative, which is what we were doing, I'm also one of those people that loves the law of the Lord because it gives such insight into the priorities of the Lord. So any legal system is going to inform us about the priorities of whoever sets the laws. So when we look at the law of the Lord, we see his priorities for the ancient Israelites. And this sort of helps us with the question about justifiable lying. So for example, if we look at the Ten Commandments, we have um, one of them, thou shalt not murder, murder the, uh, the intentional taking of innocent life. And we also see that God puts out a consequence for that. Um, and he also, you can see that there's some, some differences if you didn't intend to kill somebody. Um, but we see that generally the intentional taking of innocent life bore the death penalty. Now, lying is not so straightforward. Most people think that the ninth commandment is do not lie. But the ninth commandment is actually do not bear false witness against your neighbor. So that means do not testify in a court saying that somebody did something that they didn't do. And the consequence, so it's a specific type of lying. And the consequence for that type of lying was for that person to receive the punishment they intended to give the innocent person. So you can also see that depending on how bad the lie, the consequence was. So you accuse somebody falsely of murder, you're looking at the death penalty. You accuse somebody wrongly of stealing, then you're looking at some sort of restitution, maybe five times what, what they took or what you accused them of taking. So you see that there really is some nuance in even something as specific as this type of lying. But that's one form of lying. Think of the ways that we are tempted to lie nowadays. There could be lies like I did taking credit for something that you didn't do. Or on the flip side, there's um, being a little humble and not taking credit for what you did do. See how there's some variance there? What about somebody tells you something in confidence and somebody asks you directly if you know about it? What do you do with something like that? Do you keep the confidence and lie? So, or what about those little white lies? Like where you could tell somebody exactly what you think, but it's not very kind. So we see that God cares about lots of things. Um, he cares about us being truthful. The scripture is absolutely clear that God does not lie. In fact, it says that it is impossible for God to lie. So God places a high value on truth, and so should we. But we also see that God doesn't feel compelled to answer every single question directed to him. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus dodged a lot of questions from the Pharisees or answered them indirectly. So we don't want to place too much power in the person asking us a question that we feel compelled to offer every piece of information that we have because that could quickly get into 
like I said, um, betraying confidence or gossiping or other sorts of things that the Lord is not pleased by. But the reality is the vast majority of the time, most of the lies that we tell on a daily basis are not actually necessary. We could avoid, we could change the subject, we could say something else. And so I think that when we consider lying, if it's too, if we're looking to save innocent lives, then maybe we should lie. But for the most part, I probably would try not to if there's an opportunity not to. Um, yeah, that's it. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. That's good. We knew we would get that question, and we're glad that we did. Okay, so another one that we got was in regards to the state-sponsored infant side. So they want to know how long that lasted when Pharaoh was ordering that the Hebrew children be thrown, the boys be thrown into the Nile. So I think we've got Suzanne. Okay, so it's difficult and it's hard because um, there's no real answer to that. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> but... What we can take is some context clues, like we can look at how old Aaron was. He was 83, so that can kind of give us like, uh, or he was three years older than Moses, so that can kind of give us a little bit of a, a barrier there, a little bumper. Um, and then we can also go back to that genealogy that we all love so much now, and we can find that Aaron and Moses also had younger cousins, right? So um, their dad, Amram, had brothers, and those brothers had boys, and they were all younger. Amram was the oldest brother. So we can conclude logically that this, this did end pretty, um, not that long, um, because those cousins were born. So that's kind of my short answer for that. Does that suffice? <laughs> that's all I got for that one. Okay, we got a question. It says, in Exodus 5.3, Moses told Pharaoh, please let us go into the wilderness, or else he, referring to God, may strike, may strike us with plague or sword. What does this mean? So what it means is that what the Israelites were asking to do was not uncommon for their culture. The Egyptians worshiped and sacrificed their gods, and the Israelites are asking to do the same. And so when Pharaoh tells them no, their response back about the pestilence and sword, I believe is really a foreshadow of the plagues to come. And what they are saying is that through one act of judgment or another, God will judge disobedience. And I also believe it's a warning to Pharaoh that your disobedience would also lose his enslavement of, his, of their people group. Thanks, Heather. Okay, Exodus 9-6 says that all... Oh, you covered this in your teaching about the livestock dying. Do you have anything else on that, Helen? Uh, okay. <laughs> I'll give you the mic. Um, no, uh, Heather, um, you brought some good points. I also think that, you know, a couple um, 
Options could be that when it says actually all livestock died, it didn't mean that every single animal died, every single livestock died. Um, the other thing is that we see some time uh, passing by, and during that time we know that um, Israelites being the slaves to Egyptians, they could have acquired livestock from the Israelites, so it became their livestock. Um, and so I think these are the, the other kind of points that are, are, are good to consider. Um, yeah. That's just adds to what um, Heather said. Since you have the mic, uh -huh. oh yeah, circumcision. Okay, going back to circumcision. All right, that's actually no. Uh, all jokes apart, it is one of the hardest um, passages. Actually, top ten, I believe, in scripture to interpret. Um, and the reason being is that we only see we have verses, Beth. Yeah. So if you kind of see this translation, this is actually King James. We only see that in verse 25. It says. Uh, foreskin of her son as relating to an actual character and all the rest here we see his him and his so that literally leaves so much room to speculate what the text means and who it refers to and so the question specifically was why was the oldest son, Gershom, circumcised here and not the youngest? But the true answer is that we have not, we have to ask not why, but what now? I believe this is exactly what the scripture teaches, not so much who and why the circumcised one, not the other. Because if we're absolutely honest, there is no indication what son was circumcised. In this text, there is absolutely no indication. So we do assume it was the firstborn, so we assume it was Gershom, and we know why. We know that this account really is here for us to give us a warning to obey the God, God to know that God commands matter, and also to show us that God is sovereign, omniscient, yet merciful, right? Because so, he preserved the life of the son. But to answer directly into the question, it is assumable that uh, both of their sons were circumcised. Just historically, in this narrative, it mentions one son but not the other, just to bring the point. Uh, but we believe that both of them were eventually circumcised. So I hope that helps. I thought it was helpful. Um, one of the questions I got asked, and I promised I would cover it, um, was somebody asked me last week um, about the word Hebrew. You notice that the Israelites are called the Hebrews quite often in the book of Exodus. Um, and I thought that was an interesting catch, and I had no idea where that word came from either. So I started looking it up. I did notice in our study of Genesis that at one point Abraham was called Abram the Hebrew. And it stuck in my mind, so I thought it was interesting to get that question. So that's in Genesis 14, 13, the first time it's used. Abraham is referred to as Abraham the Hebrew. Two possible answers. Neither of them are all that exciting, but here we go. So the first one is that in Genesis chapter 11, we have one of those beautiful genealogies, and we see that one of Abraham's ancestors was called Eber. So there's a similar root word there. So it could come from that. But the one that is a little bit more popularly supported is the fact that in Hebrew, the word to cross over or to traverse pass 
it has that same root word as well. It's ever, and that's how you get Hebrew. I'm not going to butcher the Hebrew language, <laughs> although I could try, but because Abram was the one who crossed over the river to follow God's call. So that's what we have there. So it is 832, and we know that we have childcare, and we want to respect all of your time. So that's all that we have for now. If you are dying to ask questions, we will stay for a few minutes, but we want to make sure that you can go if you need to. So we'll take a pause, and we'll sit here and see if any of you have burning questions for us. Thank you, ladies. <laughs>